maybe you have started reading it, maybe you haven't, but uh, in the bulletin we talked about the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress, because that's the next book that we're going to cover. And the reason why the book is so helpful is because, uh, um, apart from many reasons, is it makes the Christian life appear to be uh, a journey, a, a pilgrimage, if you will, right? That is this continual path of going to uh, the celestial city, going to heaven. And the reason why it's so relevant, I think, to your life and to what's so biblically helpful is along the way, not to be a spoiler, but uh, Christian, the main character, he meets multiple people to continue him on the way. So as he first begins to stray, he meets a man named Evangelist who warns him and encourages him to say, hey, get back on the way. Oh, okay, I'll do that. He stumbles and falls and meets another man. Uh, Evangelist comes again and says, hey, do this, do this, remember this, remember this. He goes, oh, yes, I do remember that. He meets a friend named Faithful who comes alongside and helps him to be faithful and to stay close to the Lord and to walk and to encourage. And towards the end of his life, he's told, hey, you have the promise of the word behind your heart. You have the word before you, like, remember the word. He goes, oh, yes, remember. And at the end of the story, he's, he has the celestial city. He has heaven in front of him to remember as he's walking to, to look, to look, to look as you're walking. So the whole reason why it's so helpful is on the Christian life, he's continually being reminded over and over and over of things that he already knows. I'm sure many of us here have had the experience of getting uh, a new job, being at a new school, new relationship. And what happens is you have that first excitement, right? Hey, this is, this is the best job ever, right? This is the best school ever, the best class ever. Then after a while, it becomes, yeah, it's just that class. Yeah, I know that teacher. Yeah, I know that job. The, the, the allurement begins to kind of fall away, right? Nothing's really changed on maybe the other side, but we've changed, right? The, the thing is still the same, but we have, we have changed. And I wonder if today, if you find yourself in the Christian life, maybe feeling that way. So we often have zeal when there's new converts, when we see baptisms and conversions, we're very excited because they have this new fresh spark of, hey, Christ is good. But for many of us who've been believers for a while, we kind of go, yeah, I know. It doesn't do much, right? Just, I don't have that zeal anymore. I don't have that joy. How do I get it? Well, especially with Paul, Paul, and I remember in Philippi, Paul's in prison, right? And if there's any better place to be, he would be there. But Paul's in prison for the sake of the Lord. So on Paul's pilgrimage, as Paul's here, what does he think about? What does he encourage the Philippians with that we should be encouraged with to think about the Christian life? What are ways that, like Pilgrim's Progress, we can have people in our life to, or truths to remind us to, hey, remember Christ, remember what you're doing, and I hope to be that for you this morning. So my goal is not really to tell you anything you don't already know. My goal is to be one of those means on the journey to say, hey, remember this, because I need this too. Hey, remember this. Hey, do you know this? Look to this. That's what Paul does in this section. So I want to give you very four simple things that Christians have to encourage you to walk more faithful to the Lord this morning. It's very simple, but I hope that it will be very helpful. Um, if you know much about how wars were fought in years ago, is they would often send off a scout, right? And the scout would go ahead of the team, the group, and he would say, hey, they have these people, these things, we can take them, right? Like he would go ahead and he would stir up everybody else, right? Well, my hope is that by faith today. Faith is the scout to stir up your emotions. So what gives you more life for Christ is not an, another event. You need your faith stirred. Right? Your faith goes ahead and says, hey, look, do you, see, do you see that? 
And that's what grows emotion. That's what grows affection for Christ is seeing him by faith. And I hope you'll see him fresh this morning. So let's begin starting in verse 8. First, Christians have a surpassing treasure. And I hope you, hope you see this very clearly. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul looks at all he is and all he's accomplished. As you recall in the last section, he went through his uh, autobiography right about who he was and how great he was as a, a Jew or faithful person. And Paul looks at all those things and says, because of all I have and all that I am, I count everything as loss. And his autobiography, if you recall, is nothing short of being impressive. I mean, it's, well, if anybody had something to brag about, it was Paul. So you see the essence then of Christianity is not a pleasure forsaking, gloomy, let's live like a hermit from the world and just be to ourselves as if Christianity is supposed to be a, a dull life. Uh, the world, as you probably know, is full of promising and competing pleasures, right? Every late night infomercial wants to tell you, do you have this problem, right? You keep dropping your dishes, we, got the, we, we can help you, right? The world always promises you better things, right? Better and more family, better things, better places to go see, better possessions, better health. And friends, wh- wh- whether we realize it or not, everybody in this room, we all live by pleasure, there's a reason why you eat, because you like food or you want to live, right? There's a reason why you do the things you want to do and don't do the things you don't want to do. It's because you do what you want to do, right? You live by pleasure. So the question we must consider is, do you think that God can compete with that? Can Christianity compete with pleasure? You see, coming to Christ is not like forsaking a ribeye for a wafer. It's not what it is. It's not, oh, well, I guess I'll get that cracker instead of a steak. Rather, the Bible says it's comparing the best things and then looking at Christ is like comparing a candlestick to the sun. I mean, there's just, not, it's not even close. Different, not even close. Because Christ is the treasure, right? He Compared to him, the world is empty. But maybe you're thinking, well, but sin has pleasure. That's why we sin, because well, it feels good, right? Even just for the moment, even just for a second, right? Promises a lot. But sin does have pleasure, but it's only for a season. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it calls it a, a fleeting pleasure. The satisfaction that sin brings is like, it's like swallowing mist, right? Well, tasty for about a second, right? It's like seeing painted fruit. Looks really good, but it's fake. Because from birth, we're all born with appetites for sin. And therefore, we're all likewise born with wills opposed to God. And many of us know what that looks like. We have people in our lives who pursue different pleasures, right? Some in different forms. Some have pursued maybe drugs or maybe they're sexually immoral. But also those people who are upright or who are employed, they all pursue pleasure in different ways. They're all slaves to sin in different ways, right? Because all people are all drawn to what they find most desirable. So again, here's the question. What does God do? How does God compete with those things? Can he compete with those things? Does he just force us? I mean, if I just shove kale, he'll like it. 
If I just beat him around, he'll, he'll obey more, right? Do we just force ourselves against our will to follow Christ? Well, I, I know this is better than Jesus, but I'll just make myself believe it. Is that how you follow Christ? How about Paul? If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 9, where we see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And Paul was not just a, a nominal person. He was an enemy, right? He, if anybody had pleasure, it was Paul. He was enjoying what he was doing, persecuting belief. Like he loved what he was doing, right? You couldn't persuade, you couldn't force him or reason with him to change. He loved what he loved, right? But what changed Paul? Look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. It says this. But Saul, remember this is pre-conversion, so his name was Saul, right? But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, if anybody is going to be hard to convince, it's going to be this man, right? Look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. If anybody had an obstinate, strong will, it would have been Saul, right? Clearly. But what convinced him? Was it reasoning? Was it force? I guess you could say in a sense it was, but it's an explosive appearance of Christ, right? When he saw Christ, he, I'll follow. I'll ditch whatever I was doing and I'll follow Christ, right? My favorite parable is in Matthew chapter 13, mostly because it's great, but also because it's one verse. So it's a pretty easy parable to like. And Matthew 13 verse 44 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his what? Joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Friends, it is this treasure that will enable you to fight temptation, to love those around you, to stir your faithfulness, to relieve your sorrow, to awaken a church. It's not force. It's a greater pleasure. It's Christ. If, if he's worth it, what are you going to sell to get him? <laughs> Whatever I have, right? It's better. Jesus Christ is inexhaustibly merciful. His love is like an ocean with no shoreline. His beauty is unfading. His power is invincible. There is none like him, none greater, none as glorious. And these are things that are not new to you. Samuel Rutherford, who was in prison as well for being a Christian, years ago said this, if I could be in heaven without Christ, it would be hell. If I could be in hell and have Christ still, it would be heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven that I want. So Christ is what makes heaven heaven, right? It's him. The second thing is the gain of Christ. So first Paul's talking about the, the person. Now he's talking about, so Christ is, he is glorious. Now what's, what's the gain that Paul's talking about? Look at this in verse eight. Knowing that Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So therefore, Paul says all things, he considers, he counts them as rubbish, as a trash heap. Yours might even say dung. It's a very good translation. It, it means garbage, literally, right? This is everything compared to Christ. Dumpster, right? 
It just happens when you know Christ. It's by faith that you know him, by trusting him, by treasuring, you could say. So then if you see faith and knowing Christ are not just intellectual salutes, right? I believe that. Yes, I do. Right? It's not, it's not just an intellectual exercise. Knowing Christ, rather, is in Philippians 3, it's a treasuring, it's a loving, it's a, a trusting, it's a valuing Christ. He looks at everything else and says, knowing Christ is better. So therefore, knowing is valuing. Do you see that? Knowing is counting or treasuring, right? Forsaking sin and self, selling all I have to buy that treasure. That's, that's what Christians do. That's what Christians is, right? That's what we are. Knowing Christ is loving Christ. The question this morning, do you love him? Is knowing him enough for you? And don't miss this, that the twin truths of knowing Christ and knowing Christ as Lord are always together. If you don't, if you don't submit to Christ, you don't really love him, right? But also, if you submit to, submit to him, you, have to, you will love him, right? It's, they go hand in hand. Love always has lordship, you could say. So Christ as Lord demonstrates that in seeing him as surpassing, I'm going to submit everything to him. If he really is that good, I'll give him whatever he wants. He wants this area, it's yours. I don't, I don't want it. You, you, you want it, right? If he truly is Lord, it's submitting all things to his rule. If he is Lord, he must take preeminence, authority over all that I have and have his say with it. And by doing so, what do you gain? What does Paul say? Look, you gain what? Christ. Isn't that a treasure? So if you, if you forsake everything and you want more treasure, what should you go do? Well, go get more of Christ. He, you can't dig him up enough. You can't expend him enough. Why wouldn't you press more into gain? Maybe you knew this, but during the California gold rush in the mid-1800s, the furthest traveling distance from the East Coast, so crossing by foot is very difficult and dangerous, so you just get a boat. Well, from the East Coast, if we went all the way by ship, it would be a, a roughly a grueling 17,000 miles to get there by ship. It's about five months worth of sailing. And in doing so, if you thought about it, it sounds like suicide. Why would you do that? Why would you leave everything you have just to maybe, maybe find gold, right? Well, if you, you could stay, they were counting whatever they had as loss, right? This is not worth it. Getting gold's way better. They kind of everything as lost to get gold. And one of the obstacles a lot of people found uh, up in the mountains, if you were to find gold, would be what California is known for on their flag, which is the California grizzly bear, in case you didn't know. And seeing a grizzly bear would probably impede your gold digging desire, wouldn't it? There's a bear, there's gold. I think I'll wait, right? So what would you do? Well, what you think you would do, you would... Have a bunch of men gather around, get their rifles, and you would go on a bear hunt, right? That's what you would do. Friends, what fears impede you from gaining more of Christ? All of us have one of those things. There's a bear out there that we look at and go, I don't know if I could do it or not. Look at that nasty thing out there. Or what sins do you have that keep you from pursuing Christ? What, like those grizzlies, chase you from gain? It is fears and sins and other loves that will always compete to have your heart. And you know that where your treasure is, there your what will be? Your heart. So whatever keeps you from getting your treasure is what you treasure, right? So if you're not going to those things because you're scared, it means that fear has your heart, right? 
So when you see Christ as surpassing worth and press into knowing him and trusting and loving and following him as Lord, all other loves and fears just scurry away. It's not rocket science. Thomas Brooks said this, every man obeys Christ as he prizes Christ and no other way. The higher price any soul puts on Christ, the more noble will that soul be in obedience to Christ. Do you see that? The more you treasure Christ, the more you'll follow him. The less you value him, the less you obey him. So let me challenge you this week to consider whatever is keeping you from following Christ closely, it needs to be struck down because it shows that that is your treasure and not more of Christ. Let me encourage you to think that way this week. Secondly, Christians have a permanent righteousness. So we have a, Christians have a, surpassing treasure now we have a permanent righteousness you'll see that in these points one and four are bookends two and three are in the middle so the first thing is that you came to christ because he's better than everything secondly this is what you have you have a permanent righteousness and paul says there are two kinds of righteousness first verse nine the first kind is by the law verse nine and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law So this is the gospel, friends. If you had to ask, what is the Christian gospel? What do Christians believe? What Christ did? Verse 9 is a really good verse. I mean, this is an acorn of the forest. This is is it. If you look at a forest, they'll start from an acorn. This is it. This is the gospel in one little verse, verse 9. It is here that we see or Christ is found. What Christianity believes. This is it. Hey, have you ever heard of the imposter syndrome? I see a lot of heads affirming, which is good because I didn't either. The imposter syndrome, it's this crippling fear some people have of being found out, right? One day at work, they'll find out I lied on my resume. I can't do that skill, right? Or you have a friendship and one day they'll find out you're a fraud or you're an imposter. It's the reality that someone really knows something about you. Like if someone had come to you on the street and said, hey, I know something about you. And you go, oh, what? That fear, that, that being found out, that imposter feeling that someone really knows something about you. Well, the Bible says here that one day, verse nine, all of us will be found. Right, Paul says, I won't be found in Christ, but one day all of us will be found out. The, the veil will be ripped away. Who you really are will be shown. And if the Lord were to open the door of your life today, if you were to end your life this second and rip the veil off, what would he find? Would you be found as a fraud? Would you be found sincere? See, performance, right living, right behaving, as Paul makes very clear in his own testimony and in verse 9, those things must not be our confidence. And if we're all honest, in reality, none of us want to be found in our own righteousness. None of us do. Because the instant we claim it, we know what we're claiming. So maybe you think, well, I mean, I'm not that bad. Like, I know drug dealers, if you do. Get away from them. I know people who are bad, right? How about this? Let's say I gave each of us an audio recorder. You put it behind your ear. No one could see it. You'll, you'll, you'll forget it's there. And it recorded every moment this, this past week. It records your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your motives, your thought life, the things you say, how you spend your time. And then the next day, the next week, we gathered everybody here, all your friends, all your family, and we put it on a projector for everyone to see. Would you come to your own showing? 
If you would, you'd be a fool. I would ditch mine. I'd be sick that day, right? Because we know that it is in our weakness, we realize how weak we truly are. It is when, when we sin, we realize how truly sinful we are. It is when we are wandering that we realize how much we often and easily wander. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? If God were just to blow open the doors and say, look at who he really is. Look at who I really am. Kind of a terrifying thought. So today you must consider if you rely upon righteousness of your own or another. There's no cleaning up your life or right living that will earn God's acceptance with you. It is, Christians believe it is to be very clear that sin is it's that sinful. It's that there's none righteous, Romans 3 says, no, not one. So then what is our hope? What's the Christian good news? We'll look at verse 9 again. First was the righteousness that comes by the law. The second kind is by faith in Christ. Look at verse 9. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what Christians as believers, we should die on this right here. This doctrine is what salvation hinges upon. Justification by faith. So friends, as you go out today, as you leave today and you look out in, in, in the world, as you're driving uh, in the store, at work, and in your own household, everybody you see can easily be divided into two camps. No, not liberal or conservative. No, not race. No, not weird other things like that. Either in Adam or in Christ. Meaning everyone either stands in the merits of, shares the nature with, is represented by, is counted in Adam or all those things in Christ. Just read, maybe tonight you could read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And Paul just gives you a beautiful picture of what that looks like. But our greatest concern is not people's first birth, though that's excellent. We love new babies. We love first birth. But our greatest concern is your second birth, right? We love the second birth more. That's what we aim for. So brothers, that is what our aim should be focused on and funds spent towards and minds concerned about. See, our missions giving is not about, like, we want a goal, not so we can say, hey, look at us. Kathy knows the point is that we'll say, hey, look what Christ can do with this. That's the point, right? We set a goal so we can say, let's give more so Christ can do more, right? That's why we give. So the second birth will happen, not the first birth. We want the second birth to happen, right? So therefore, everyone is either born in Adam, guilty, sinful, enslaved. They're patterned after him. They look like him. Or you are born again in Christ. You are counted righteous. You have a new nature, a freed will. You're, you're patterned after Jesus Christ. It is through faith, Paul says, in Christ, that the righteousness from God is credited to us. Isn't that just stunning? That sentence today has just been in my brain all week. It's from God. As if you were to stand before him and say, I have what you gave. It's this. And he counts it to you because he gave it to you. He's going to accept it, right? I mean, I'll bring anything in my hands when I stand before him. It's in Romans chapter 3 that we read the, the reality of what the gospel teaches. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 20, says this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from what God commands, right? Apart from the Ten Commandments, you could say. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So you have two options before you. I met a girl this past week outside FedEx, and I said, you have two options. You could work like nobody's business and try to get cleaned up. Try hard as you want. You could do whatever you want. You could be like Mother Teresa and go as far as you want. Or you can just trust Christ. when It's freely it's offered to you. All God requires is, is given to you like a gift. Just repent and trust in Christ. He merits it to you. And he's in that. What would you rather have? Isn't that common sense? A free gift? It's free. Because your righteousness is from God, God always knows it. It always stands before him. First John chapter 2 says, Jesus Christ, the righteous for you. He could, Jesus, or the, the Father continually sees Christ in you and you in him. So friends, on your worst day as a Christian, Christ shines forth. Do you understand that? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, as only Spurgeon could say it. When God accepts a, accepts a sinner, he is, in fact, only accepting Christ. He looks into the sinner's eyes and sees his own dear son's image there and takes him in. So he looks at you, he sees, look at my son, because it's been credited to you. I have a, I'm not a betting man, but I'm going to bet right now. I bet everybody in this room wants their lives to count. Is that accurate? We look to how we have parented. We look at our work output. We look at our retirement, maybe now or coming. We look at how our kids have been or will be or hope to be. We look at our family strength. We look at all these visible measurements and think, has my life counted? Does it count? Have I done enough? And we look at the things that we can tangibly make count. And what we do when we do this, we're looking to be validated, right? We look at visible things and say, man, I hope my life counts for something. Well, I'll look to that. I know my life counts because of that, right? We look to be validated or accepted or to feel worthy. It's, it's what you wake up in the morning for is what you look for your validation for. So what do you look to? What do you look to to find a sense of worth in the world? Well, whatever that is, that is your justification. So you look to, man, if my kids would just perform better, feel like I made it finally. I feel like I had this. I feel like I made it finally. I feel like worthy, right? That's, that's your justification. John Rockefeller, who you guys know is not really a sermon quote with a person, but he did say that one more million dollars and I'll feel okay. Poor guy. That was his justification. If I said one more, I'll feel like I made it in the world. I feel like I, I, I finally I made it. I landed my plane. So is that what you look for? How do you know you're accepted? What do you look to? What does 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 say? For God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that's justification. That's acceptance. So don't miss this. Being justified in Christ is more than just being forgiven. It's more than a governor saying, death penalty pardoned. No more of that. Instead, it's like the governor getting this criminal, pardoning him and saying, you also get the Congressional Medal of Honor. We think, that guy? He gets that? That's justification, right? Forgiveness is a negative aspect. It's 
You're free from things you have done. I'm not going to punish you. You're forgiven, right? But justification is positive. God now looks at you and says, acceptable, nailed it, worthy, right? That's what God does. So friends, Jesus Christ is your justification. He's your reason for existence. He's your rest, your comfort, your validation. So when you feel like, man, what am I living for? This isn't working. It's not, I don't feel that. I don't feel accepted or worthy. Who is your worth before everybody? Is it what you've done? Is it works of the law? Never, right? You're valid because of what Christ has done. You're accepted because of what Christ has done, not because of what you do. Lean on that. So therefore, your job now can just be your job. You don't have to find your worth in it. Your children can just be your children. Your future, your whatever you're looking to can just be what it's supposed to be. You don't have to gruel for it anymore. You can just rest and Christ accepts me. Let it be. That's it. You're free. Do you see that? Because none of us measure up, but Christ did for you. Do you see that? Third, Christians have a lifelong union. There's two pieces to this union in verse 10. First piece is we have resurrection living. Look at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. So notice that Paul has shown us the worth of Christ, right? He's valuable. He's your righteousness, right? He's, what does that do for me? Well, Paul lays it out for you, right? It's very simple, that I may know him. So to know Christ as surpassing is a heaven of heavens to Paul, right? If I know him, I got everything else. If I know Paul, I'm set. I don't need anything else. I got Christ. And that is your fuel for the Christian life. See, to know Christ is the resolution to all your sinfulness. If we only knew Christ more deeply, life would be so much tangle-free, right? Most of our problems are because we just do things to ourselves. Things happen to us and we go, ah. We get tied up, but if we would only love Christ more, know him more, things would be easier in a sense. Why is that? Well, because look, to know him and the power of his resurrection. So it's the power of a resurrected Christ. That's your hope for how you live today and tomorrow. Not because you're strong enough, because you're articulate enough. It's a resurrected Christ. And I think we know this, right? What outside force can bend the will of an unrepentant sinner? Got any ideas? We don't have any ideas. No, we have nothing, right? What can conquer someone's sin? Or perhaps what can enable someone to obey and to love Jesus more? Can we do anything upon them? If I just shove them, in, if I just shove them into a box and smack them around, right? I'm making VBS every day, right? Nonstop, 24-7, 365 not going to work, right? We know that. What will weaken someone's love for sin and strengthen their love for Christ? Well, the law only excites disobedience. When I tell my kids, hey, don't touch that wall, do you know what they do within seconds? They poke that wall with a little finger because I know it's not going to help them. Don't do that. And they go, okay. Those things just excite more rebellion, right? It's a good law, but it's sad because they don't have a regenerate heart, right? It's only going to crush them or weigh them down or discourage them or excite them to say, I'll touch it faster than dad, right? This poem is uh, credited to John Bunyan, though. We're pretty sure he didn't write it, but I like John Bunyan, so let's pretend it is. It's a couplet. It says this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet 
nor hands. So obey, obey, obey. Well, how? I don't know. I'm just the law. I can't give you anything. Just do it, right? The law is very helpful, apparently. Run, John, run the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Do you see that? So the gospel says, hey, love the Lord more. And it it gives you the ability to do so. That's the good news, not just, hey, do it. Well, I can't. That's just the law. Instead, the gospel says, do this, and I will give you this resurrection power Paul's talking about. I will enable you to, I'll bid you to fly. I'll give you the wings to fly. Just flap them. Just fly, right? Isn't that good news? So we don't need more programs. We don't need more prayer. I'm sorry. (laughs) Back up, Kale. We don't need more programs. We need more prayer, right? Blasphemous. Fire the pastor. Our problem is not that we don't know God's law. It's that we don't follow it because we're not excited in our heart to do so, right? We are powerless in ourselves. Friends, if you're, if you're a Christian this morning, let me put it very simply for you. You can obey God's law. You can. If you're a believer, you actually can. And you can please God in doing because you have this resurrection power. The resurrected Christ was over physical things and spiritual things, including you, right? So this week, when you have a situation at home, at work, a scuffle, an issue, a simple tendency, an annoyance, a frustrated will, ruined plans, your hair trigger reaction will be, "Ah!" right? I have little toddlers. I know what mine is. "Ah!" I mean, it's, right? When someone ticks you off this week, you're going to hair trigger. Like, you're going to want to strangle them. Why? But if you have the power of the resurrection by faith, what do you say? Lord, I don't have to act that way. I can actually not do that. I have the strength to not do it because Christ rose. I don't have to do that. I can actually obey in obedience, right? Look at Philippians chapter 2. We just covered this not too long ago. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you actually can obey. When you feel one day, man, there's no way I can do this. You're right where you should be because you can't. But Christ in you, you can. Do you see that? It's resurrection power. The second piece is probably our least favorite piece, suffering. Look at verse 10. We may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. All of us want the power, but not the suffering, right? I can do the good things, but I don't want to suffer. I want to just coast. Wish I could coast. But the suffering we endure, whether physical, relational, financial, is never alone. When we do it, we share in Christ's suffering. If Jesus bled for you, will he not be there for you? Are we so feeble to forget those things? He's no longer bound to his cross, but by faith he is bound to you. He invites us to draw closer to him in suffering. He enables us by his power. Remember, it's power. If you look here, it's verse 10. It's power and suffering, right? So you have the power to endure. It's not separate. It's together. Just as the book of Job, he says that God told the sea to come here and come no further. So God commands your suffering to, it has a bank. It doesn't overflow. It goes to the bank, right? It's in suffering that we feel Often when we suffer, we feel as if God is just in an armchair, right? He's just watching. I'm wiggling in pain and frustration. He's just watching. Do you feel that way? 
If, if you've had suffering, that's how you feel. It's, it's the lie, right, that God's just watching. He's sitting there thinking, well, I could intervene. You know, I could. Is that true? Is God apathetic in suffering? The blood, the loneliness, the fear, the horror, the pain, the shock. Is God just in an armchair? See, that terrible caricature that we have, John Stott said, is blown to smithereens at the cross. Why? Because at the cross, when Christ suffered, was, was that God's will? Was he near Christ in the sense that this was the will of the Father? Well, certainly. The cross shows that he is in suffering, right? And friends, we must too choose this suffering life. Jesus chose to suffer death that he would glorify God. We too must choose the Calvary Road, the cross of Christ. You must choose to deny yourself in a way that you are rebelling against him this week to the point of death. Death to our selfish ambition, our will, our plans, our desires. We must put to death ease and comfort and apathy. So friends, what areas in your life are you preferring Christ or preferring these things over Jesus? What ways have you not died to yourself? Here's a good thing. God isn't looking for great men. He's looking for dead men. He can use them. Fourth and lastly, and this is much more brief, verse 11, Christians have an invincible motive. It's related to the first point. We have a superior surpassing treasure and an invincible motive. So in between you have righteousness and suffering and power, how do we get to the end? That's where we're going, right? How do we get to the end? So Paul says here, look at verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, this is what Paul saw at the end of all he did and all he did and why he did all he did. Whatever it takes, Paul says, I will make it. Whatever means, I will attain this resurrection from the dead. Any means possible. So friends, again, I must ask you, is there an area of your life or a habit or an attitude or a sin that keeps you, that it's a means you're keeping before you? Thomas Watson said, and I've quoted this quote, I don't know how many times, that we are more sure to rise out of our graves than out of our beds. And brothers, if that's true, if the reward of the resurrection is immeasurably beautiful, why do we stray from the difficulty of the Christian life? Why do we settle for mediocre? Why do we live in fear of, disobe- or a fear of obedience? Rather, Maybe you're here and you wear glasses. Uh, one of the most common sight problems is being nearsighted. Maybe you have that. It's when you see things up close really good, then you walk away. Okay, where'd he go? Where'd the book go, right? Those words are fuzzy now, or I have the same thing. Things up close are easy to see. Things far away are just a blur, right? Well, that physical problem is a pretty good analogy of our spiritual problem. We're good at seeing things up close. Today, five minutes from now, 10 minutes from now. We're good at seeing things today, but when it comes to the future, we, we, we're a blur. We don't look at things that way. We think about things in the immediate. Everything is immediately annoying or immediately important. Things out there, well, they can wait, right? We're, we're spiritually blind in that way. We only see what's right in front of us. Let me challenge you to do this this week. Today or tomorrow at work or while you drive or at the store, look. Like, even in this room, look at, look at a person. Don't scare them, but look at a person and consider where will they be in 10,000 years? Will this matter in a thousand years? 
Am I doing what will matter in a thousand years? Do you think that way? That will impact how you live right now, won't it? Any means possible, resurrection. What matters 10 million years from now? That's how we should think. That's the fuel that will motivate you, that will consume you from wasting your time, that will influence how you think, how you obey, how you increase your zeal. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, there's a great line where the main character says this, what we do in life echoes in eternity. The Bible says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due for us, whether in the body, whether good or evil. I want to close with this. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 20 years old, I mean, you're writing this when you're 20 years old. You've already surpassed me by decades. He wrote 70 resolutions. Now, I'm not going to read you all 70, so relax. But I will read you three. Because of this, he resolved to live a certain way. You can find them online. They're free. They're very encouraging. Here's three of them that he, I think, should be your prayer this week as you leave here today. Resolved, never henceforth, till I die, to act as if I were in any way my own but entirely and altogether God's. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Let's pray.